Good evening. Uh, welcome to this, uh, our, the first uh, lecture of the 2012 uh, season of the General Aviation Group. Now, it's my great pleasure to um, introduce tonight Clive Rustin. Uh, he's going to tell us about his long career as a test pilot. First of all, with the RAF, his career spanned 32 years. Um, where he had postings at um, Bedford, Farnborough, and Boscombe Down. Uh, and then he's carried on active flying after retirement, including, we're told, he's a qualified airship captain. So maybe we'll be hearing about that. Uh, Clive is also um, active on the association, um, the ETPS association, and it's of interest to note that the ETPS has a worldwide membership of 600. Um, an exclusive group of which uh, Clive is a member. So without uh, further ado, I will um, uh, ask Clive to uh, give his lecture. Well, good evening. I feel very privileged to be here, but I'm amazed so many people have got nothing better to do with time and come and listen to me. 55 years of flying fun. It has been all fun. I hope some of it's been useful for other people, but it's certainly been fun. It's actually 58, but my wife won't let me own up to more than 55. She said, that's, that's enough. Now, why do I start with a picture like that? Um, well, I was always told when you're going to give a talk, put a pretty picture up first because it you know, attracts the attention. Everybody will have a look at it. Well, that's on the slopes of the Matterhorn, which is a pretty amazingly pretty picture. And the good-looking young girl there, the girlfriend there, who's now my wife, sitting in the front, um, and that's 50 years ago come December. So that's about 51 and a half years old. The other reason I was told to uh, do is to make sure you keep the talk at a reasonably high level, you know, not, not too lowbrow, but not too highbrow. Well, that's 8,000 feet up on the slopes of the... <laughs> so I'm hoping that that will pass muster. And the other reason why it's there is to show you that I haven't changed in all that time. <laughs> I told you you came to listen to a load of nonsense. And the final reason is that actually it's my love of skiing that changed my whole career. So we'll move on quickly, hopefully. Yes, what happened was when I finished university, I was going to be a chemical engineer, and uh, Dad had made quite a few sacrifices to let me go there. But when I was 16 years old, my school... By the way, if anybody sees my lips moving, you can't hear anything. Would you ask me stand up and ask me to speak louder? There's no microphone here. It's too high-tech for the Royal Aeronautical Society. Um, Yes, I was going to be a chemical engineer, but I had to do national service, which was the order of the day way back then. And I went to um, the, join the university air squadron. And why did I join the air squadron? Because somebody told me during Fresher Week that if you joined the air squadron, you kept your nose clean for a whole year, you got a 35-pound tax-free bounty. And I had worked out that my last skiing holiday before I joined the Air Force, which was two weeks in Muran over Christmas and the New Year and having a fantastic... All, everything, all told, had actually come to £35. So I said, I'll join. And they said, well, you, there is a selection process. But anyway, I, I got through it and I spent three happy years um, at university and flying with the Air Squadron and did concentrate just enough on the, the, the boring bit, the university bit, to get my degree. So when I came to do national service... The advantage was with the, I'd got to the level with my training that if I, when I did national service in the RAF, I was guaranteed training up to full wing stand, in other words, a fully qualified pilot, and some time on a frontline operational squadron. So I started my training up at Middleton St. George on the old Vampire, 
and that's a two-seater, side-by-side, single jet. The interesting thing in those days, there were no bang seats in it at all, and um, we had a lot of fun in that. There was much more room in the cockpit, and I always remember one of the most memorable things of my time up there was when we were flying down Lake Windermere with the instructor in control, and he'd had me undo the straps and look out the back, and he went lower and lower until, he, until we'd been leaving a good bow wave across Lake Windermere. <laughs> like, very serious stuff, training to be a part, you know. Anyway, I got through my wings, and then I went to, um, down into Wales to learn to fly uh, the aeroplane, not as an aeroplane, but as a warplane fighter, because that's what it was all about, really. And having done that, I then went to RAF Germany and was posted to 145 Squadron, which was Venom's. That was a day fighter ground attack aeroplane, which had in those days very sophisticated stuff like guns and rockets and bombs. And um, the smoke there is the starter. When you press the starter button, a big cartridge fired, which shoved the piston, which turned the helix, which wound the engine up, and away you went. And I spent one very happy year on the squadron, and I was coming up to the end of my national service, and everybody said, why don't you stay in the Air Force? And I said, I'm an engineer. They said, well, the Air Force needs engineers. And I said, no, thinking Dad would not be very amused if I left. But then when I was on my, remember which way to point, my last flight in the RAF, I thought, on the Venom, over Germany, and I suddenly thought, I really don't want to stop doing this. So when I got down, I decided if I could get into the Air Force full-time and make it a career and combine my engineering with my flying, there was just this faint dream, maybe I could become a test pilot and Dad wouldn't feel that he'd wasted all that, you know, effort and money, not to be blunt, to be blunt, I mean. And um, so I finished my national service, left the Air Force, waited to go through all the selection board things, and I'd started looking for a job flying in the civil side. You'd be mighty amused to know, I went for an interview with Douglas Bader, who at that time was running Shell Aviation. His job as a pilot, he said, they're ten a penny. He said, if you want a job as a chem- chemical engineer, you can sign here now. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what they thought of pilots. Anyway, I decided that I, I would stay in, and I did get in. And my first squadron, well, when I came back in, I had to do a refresher because I hadn't been flying for six months. I went down to Chivener and then learned to fly the Hunter operationally, firing guns and rockets and all that sort of thing. And because the flight commander, the senior flight commander there, was a chap who had passed me out and got me my wings, to get my wings, he said, anybody can fly an airplane, but I've got a job for you to do tonight. And if you pass it, you can get, you know, pass you through the course tomorrow. Now, I had to go and change his three-month-old baby's daughter, uh, his daughter's nappy. And he said, if you can change a nappy, then you can fly an aeroplane. So I did that. Anyway, the, the advantage of all that, when I joined this squadron, he was a senior flight, and he got me almost straight away into their display team. In those days, virtually every squadron had a display team, not for things like farm and things, but, you know, for, for various um, uh, celebration days, Queen's Jubilee, whatever, then the squadron would put on its own display team. So that led me to the situation that when I'd finished my time on 56 Squadron, oh, just quick while I was there, yeah, this is just fun of flying in the Air Force. Those targets there, they're what you've come down a dive and you fire your four cannons and when you've finished you always do a little buzz. This is on the south coast of Cyprus and then the range safety officer, having made absolutely sure you really have finished, he comes out and counts the holes if there are any in the target. You're allowed to fire 100 bullets and he counts up the score. Um, bit more. This was the other thing, which was air-to-air firing, because remember, there were no missiles here. If you wanted to hit an enemy aircraft, you had to shoot it down, just like they did in the Battle of Britain. And this big flag was towed behind, to show how young I'm not, was towed originally behind a mosquito. 
and then later on it was towed behind um, a meteor. And you can see these sparks here. They're holes where four aircraft would fire. One would be loaded with bullets with red paint on the front, another one with yellow, another one with green, another blue. So when this flag was dropped by the meteor over the airfield, you rushed out to grab it, and your job was to convince everybody if your bullets were red. It didn't matter what it looked like. All those holes were red. <laughs> and um, that, that was the fun of the game. And we did the firing up in Accrington, off the coast, obviously, and um, in Germany, we'd done it at Silt. Also, you obviously do the firing over the sea. Then, because possibly of my time as a, in, in the MIDI display team, when I left 56 Squadron, I joined the Black Arrows. Now, I'm not in this formation. This happened before my time. But I show it because it's pretty remarkable. Because in all those years, somebody in the audience might tell me I'm wrong, nobody has looped 22 aircraft in close formation. It's never been done, hadn't been done before, and it's never been done since. So it was pretty remarkable. So I spent a very happy time just boring holes in the sky and doing formation errors and things, although we still had an operational role. We still flew air defence cover for the United Kingdom. You remember there was a Cold War going on then, and our job was to intercept Russian airplanes that had come across the North Sea and didn't look as though they were going to turn back. And people often ask, did you ever actually go to war? Well, the closest I ever got to fighting was when I was out over the North Sea and we were told to untape the, trigger, the, the sticky tape around the trigger, which was the ultimate safeguard, to make sure you didn't fire the guns back. And we'd just finished untaping, and the, the Russian turned away and went back. So I can't claim I've got much operational experience, only training for the job. And that, the biggest formation I ever <coughs> flew in, though, this was at Farnborough one year, when I was still on 56 Squadron. Yeah, I was still on 56 Squadron. 90 aircraft, there were 45 javelins leading 45 hunters. This was on the way home. In close formation, you can imagine 90 aircraft flying over Farnborough every day. It was quite some sight. Um, and this... Oh, go back a bit. Yeah, on the way home, what was funny, as I say, this is news for me. While we just left Farnborough one day, <coughs> going off to the north-east, um, and still flying at low level with the javelins in front. The reason the javelins were in front, because javelins had a navigator in board, and there was a reasonable chance, we thought, with 45 navigators on board, we probably would find Farnborough. <laughs> and more importantly, we'd find our way home. But anyway, in this close formation of 90 aircraft, somebody launched a glider into the middle of us. And it was just break, break, break. And the, and the display that was put on when 90 aircraft dispersed, I said, if we could do that over Farnborough every day, we'd be asked back until the time ran out. It was quite, quite exciting, but nobody hit anybody, and we all went back to the Cambridgeshire area and had a good beer up that evening. Um, now, after that, I was posted from the Black House RF Coldesaw, and I know there's some lightning jocks here, so I expect you to shout if I'm telling any lies, but of all the airplanes, and you can see there are quite a few that I've had the pleasure of flying over the years, it's about 165, I think, at the last count, nothing was ever more awesome and inspiring than my first ride in a Lightning. <coughs> It is basically, it's got two Rolls-Royce Avon engines in with reheat at the back. For those who don't know, you pour extra fuel in the back and you virtually turn it into a, almost like a rocket. So you've got the jet engine here pushing thrust out, raw fuel burning there. And to give you an example of what this is like, on an airline flight, I don't doubt that everybody in the audience has flown in an airliner somewhere these days. And normally, after about 35 minutes, 30 minutes, let's say, after takeoff, the captain Kate says, I hope you're enjoying your flight on Bubble and Squeak Airlines and Trixie and Bubbles will look after you and the police announce we're now levered our cruising altitude of 35,000 feet. 
I've started my stopwatch when the brakes go off, and as on average, it's 30 to 35 minutes. In one of those, from brakes off, tell me if I'm lying, Martin, you'll be passing 35,000, 36,000 feet, one minute, 45 seconds after you let the brakes off. <laughs> and it's like that. Now, I've flown more high-performance aeroplanes than that. Kate, got a seat for you in the front. Um, so, truly awesome aeroplane. And just to see it up front, in a Hunter, which I'd been flying before, your head was probably in the cockpit was about there. So not only were you twice the height above the ground, you also flew the approach speed at 175 knots instead of 130, and that's knots which you multiply by 1.2 for miles per hour. And it also had air-to-air missiles on it. They were not radar-guided in those days, they were heat-seeking missiles, um, but that was a huge... That was the radar in front, and it was a truly awesome, awesome aeroplane. Agree, Martin? Yep, thumbs up. Right. So from there, I then, after I'd done a short tour there... I applied for the Empire Test Part School at the start of trying to make my dream come too, and I was lucky I got in there, and this isn't the year that I did it. Um, I did the course in 1961. The reason I show this is all of these aeroplanes, when you go to the Test Pilot School, you learn to be a test pilot, and in those days you didn't know what you were going to fly. It could be little aeroplanes, big aeroplanes, fast aeroplanes, slow aeroplanes. It could even be helicopters, because in those days there were no dedicated helicopter pilots. Helicopter pilots long ago were just people who but either finished their fixed-wing days or whatever, or somebody pointed the fickle finger of fate and said, you are going to be a helicopter test pilot. And that's what they did. And so you'll see, this is a mix. We had older airplanes than that, but there's a Canberra, medium-range bomber. There's a large transport aircraft. There's the Lightning, supersonic. Uh, there's a medium-range transport aircraft. There's the Hunter trainer. There's a helicopter. Um, and there's another one there. That's a Bassett. That was a variable stability airplane where a computer could make it fly Believe me, that you could fly that and it would handle the way any one of those did, depending on what the data you'd fed into the computer. And you did this course for a whole year, and believe me, you worked your backside off, and it's no easier now. It's probably much more complicated, but there's only 24 hours in a day. And basically, the way I describe it, you do ground school all morning, you fly all afternoon, and you write reports overnight. And the, I was courting Julie at the time, who was living in London. Many was the time I was on the road at 4 o'clock in the morning, from her flat back to start the day, ground school, followed by flying, followed by more work. And the way I sum it up is if I had worked as hard at university as I did in that one year, I could have taken, and I'm not joking, I could have taken three degrees at the same time and still had time to chase girls and drink beer. So, and as, as an indication now, they only have to do a little bit of extra work and they get a degree after one year of doing this course. It's, it's about six months more work after that. So pretty awesome. And, of course, that opens up the world of test flying, which we'll now move on to as quickly as I can. I don't want you to try and read anything on this thing here. Just look at the numbers, and there's a reason for it. When you fly in an airplane, you, nowadays you have all sorts of recorders and instrumentation working to record the whole flight. You probably data link it onto the ground. But in those days, often the only record of your test flight was the notes you made while you were flying. And often, if you're in a busy airplane and the lightning didn't fly for very long. You know, some sorties on a lightning could be just 15 minutes if you were low-level supersonic stuff. And so they developed this maze here, Cooper Harper, George Cooper, dear friend of mine. He's 95 now, still going strong. All, right, if you, all you had to do was write one of these numbers down, and you fed all the way back there, so the scientists would know that if you said that, one, two, three, basically, is that's the best you've ever flown, all one, two, three, it's all great, absolutely nothing wrong with the airplane. 
Four, five, and six, if you, you know, when you're representing the government or the airline, you can say, well, you can buy it, but in my view, if you paid to get these things fixed, don't bother reading them, then it will be a lot better. And then you say, if, if you come down and say it's a seven, eight, or nine, what you say, in my view, it will either not do the job, or you, and you're wasting your money. You've got to pay to have it amended. And if you give it a ten, you just let control be lost during some portion of required operation. Okay, if it was just an air-to-air sortie, well, a 10 just meant you just couldn't do air-to-air. If you, it was a mission, whole mission assessment, what it meant if you gave it a 10 is you'd have to walk home. <laughs> so that's all I want you to remember. Those numbers, uh, and uh, I'll, say I'll, I'll clarify that as we get near the end. Right, I was lucky. I got my posting, my choice, and I went from test pilot school at Farmer in those days. It's now at Boscombe Down. And I went to Aeroflight. Now, that was a typical flight line. But have a look at this. We had 14 aircraft on Aeroflight. Nine of them were experimental, and we only had four test pilots. But as well as that, we also had the opportunity... I'm not sure what the next slide is now. No, go back a bit. We also had with us at Bedford the Blind Landing Experimental Unit, who had a Varsity, a Comet, a Canberra, and a Meteor... And when the weather was actually bad, they had to have two pilots. Good weather, they could do their trials with a scientist on the, in the co-pilot seat, but bad weather. So when we couldn't fly with our flimsy little airplanes and minimal fuel often in them, we would go and co-pilot for them. So that was another range of aircraft we could fly. And also at Bedford was the Naval Air Department, who had a helicopter and a sea vixen. And guess what? We could fly his airplanes, because it was only him, so if he wanted to leave them, and we, and we could fly that, and they couldn't fly ours. So it really was amazing. And at the end of my first three years, I'd flown 70 different types, which is, you know, nowadays a test pilot is lucky if he gets one aeroplane to type. So it's not a boast, it was just sheer luck. And this was a typical flight line. More about all of these, that's the handy page 115, Slender Delta, because the Americans said Slender Deltas was the right way to go supersonic. This was a supersonic transport we're talking about era. Um, but it wouldn't be possible to fly it at low speeds. And that, we built that research aircraft more. <laughs> That's an Avro 707, which was a research aircraft to see whether the Vulcan got picked a, a real, well, a model of a real Vulcan down there, and that's to see whether it would work. But we had that with a computer in it, and we could make that fly like lots of different airplanes. That was a short SB-5, which was a research aircraft to see whether the Lightning was going to be a successful airplane or not. All of this stuff is done on computer. And there is a P-1A, I can't remember if it's a 1A or 1B, and it wasn't flying when I was there, but we were doing runway arrestor trials with it. But we did have a lightning, we did a lot of light flying, lightning flying at Bedford. So it was just amazing. You never knew. Every day there were different airplanes on the flight line, and it, it, was, it was dreamlike. Now, our main areas of activity, and only the main areas, there were many others, was supersonic research for Concorde, and that's the dear old airplane, sadly no longer flying, now, I talked about the low-speed delta. That is 75 or 79 degrees of sweetness. Brian, Barry? What, what? 79. 79, I thought so. I didn't want to exaggerate. I do it all the rest of the time, but I didn't want to, somebody in the audience to do it. Okay, that thing there was just amazing. This was on the way to the Paris Air Show. Um, it had a sharp leading edge. You can probably see there, you, there's a little pipe there. You could stream smoke, and that would visualise the airflow, because unlike with an ordinary aeroplane, that's straight wings and all that, or even Marley's work, the airflow goes over the wing like that and down the back and it sucks it up into the air. With, with this, a vortex starts here and there's a huge great vortex sitting over the wing which makes it virtually impossible to stall the aeroplane. And would you believe, we would often fly in formation on the 115 that would climb up to 10,000 feet at maximum continuous 
and then it would slow down. We were looking how slow you could go in it and how the flow patterns changed. And we would chase it in an oster, and when this thing settled down at full power, well, just off full power, it would slow down. And the only way we could stay with it so that our photographer could visualise the vortex flow, we had the engine at idle, we had full flaps, we had both doors held wide open, <laughs> and we had full rudder on for side slip. And still, the 115 at full power was descending away below us. And it was controllable the whole time. Obviously, you, you, know, you couldn't round out or anything like that, but it was really very, very slow. And one day, when I, by this time I was boss of Aeroflight, the, we were looking at the final lowest speed it could go to. And one pilot came back and said, it's 35 knots, boss. I said, why is that? He said, well, 35 knots controls are not effective anymore. And another one said it, and then another one said it. And I thought, well, I'm the boss. I ought to have a go myself. And I went up, and I slowed down and slowed down, did all the tests we'd learned to do at test pilot school. And sure enough, 35 knots after that, I couldn't get it to go any slower. And then you had to accelerate because you couldn't land it below 120 knots, so you risked banging the back end on the runway. And I'm taxiing back in all of a sudden, I go all hot and cold. If you've ever had that feeling when you realise something, you've done something incredibly dumb. And I sweated and I went back in and I said, you know why we can't go any lower than 35 knots, guys? My only thing that made me feel better, none of the guys, there's a needle sticks out of an instrument. The needle, when it's below it, when it's cut down to it, it sits on the needle at 35 knots. <laughs> Why did they design one that didn't go down to naught? So we all had to go back and try again, and we were all totally humiliated that four, we thought, qualified test pilots were flying along with the swing. God knows how slow we got. Um, but it's no wonder the Oster couldn't keep up with it, with everything hanging out. So there's many more stories, but we haven't got long to go. Right, the next thing that we've been very, very heavily involved is, is the 221, the BAC Slender Delta. There's a nice little model of Rustin's toys here. That's the thing there. Now, that actually was rebuilt from the FD2, which is that one, which was the first aeroplane past 1,000 miles an hour. And we had both the FD2 <coughs> and this one at Bedford for Slender Delta and Concord Research. So it was supersonic research and Slender Delta, again, to see whether these things would be flown. Never mind the aerodynamics and the drag and the performance of them. They had to be, can a pilot, you know, an ordinary mortal fly them? And um, the only sad thing is they, went, they actually converted the one that broke the world speed record into this. Um, now, this is the only time these two were ever airborne at the same time together to, to fly in formation. So you can see, you know, that is the son of this. Um, but that was the one that broke the world speed record. Um, and if you look very carefully, you can probably see my shoelaces just about in there. Um, but they were, they were incredibly difficult to fly. The, 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 well, that wasn't, but this FD2 one, and I will be amused. After I had somebody who used to work in the flight simulator at Bedford, it was a very, for those days, very advanced, sophisticated simulator where we would try everything, uh, basically do research flying in the simulator, which had motion and vision, um, but it was safe. You know, if it crashed, you just walked away and said, another one lost. Anyway, I, it was my first project when I arrived on Aeroflight as the junior guy. I was not flying aeroplanes directly, although that came along as routine. I was made in charge of research simulation. So it so happened when I got there, and I was all eager to fly the FD2, obviously. The 2 to 1, by the way, when I arrived, hadn't been, been built. That was in gestation period. And I went along and did all the things you learned to do and gave all those Cooper Harper numbers for each phase of flight. And then it came out and was debriefing with Dave Perry, who finished up his control of aircraft. 
And he said, well, what do you think of the simulation, Clive? And I said, well, and I told him a little bit about, you know, test flying jargon. I said, well, actually, Dave, I said, I hate to see this, but if the FD2, the real airplane, flew like your simulator flies, nobody would have allowed it to fly a second time. It was so difficult to fly. And I haven't got time this evening to explain why, but it was, it was pretty much a nightmare, particularly on the uh, approach to land. So you can imagine my horror when finally, after about two years, I got to fly the FD2. And when I had landed, I taxied in, parked, and I started walking away towards the simulator set. And the crew chief said, you haven't signed in. I said, I'll be back. And I walked in, knocked on Dave Perry's door, and I said, Dave, I've just flown the FD2. Do you remember what I said about the simulator a couple of years ago? He said, I'll never forget. I said, well, I've just flown the airplane, and your simulator was 100% perfect. I said, I still don't believe it. (laughs) So there you go. Um, Moving on quickly now. The only reason I show this airplane, it's not a terribly interesting picture, but this was me delivering it from Bristol, where it was built, uh, from the FD2 into the 221. But I don't know how well you can see it, and that's a chase hunter, which was used for all sorts of trials. That was originally the air-to-air <coughs> missile trials aircraft. But you can see a very, very long undercarriage there. Remember, that, that was an FD2. That undercarriage is now a lightning undercarriage, because this thing's coming in fast, so they put the nose wheel is a very, very long thing, and that was a gannet nose wheel. And the reason that was done was because with the different changed aerodynamics in this, when you came in at a landing speed, which wouldn't blow the tires when you hit the ground, you wouldn't have enough control power to the nose, you quite nose up, and so they had to have a long nose so the nose didn't drop. But more importantly, on takeoff, if it hadn't got the already a nose up attitude, by the time you got enough lift to get the thing in the air, you'd have probably blown the main tires. So half the rotation on takeoff was achieved by having a long, long nose wheel. So there we go. That was an FD2, lightning undercarriage, gannet nose wheel, and a completely new wing. The only thing about that stays the same is the cockpit and the engine. But that was the ingenuity of our engineers, which is why at one time we were doing very well. Next thing was VSTOL. These were just our main areas of activity at Bedford. There were all sorts of other things, takeoff directors I'll mention, um, Aquaplaning effects on the runway. Remember the Munich air disaster when an airplane didn't get airborne because it was, it was aquaplaning and it couldn't, it couldn't accelerate because of the drag and it couldn't stop because it was aquaplaning. And we had a whole range of aircraft there from, we tested scimitar, swifts, different types of airliners running through artificial slush ponds on the runway, little runway ponds. Anyway, the other thing was at this time the Hawk Sidleys and, and Bristol's had developed all their ideas and put together a thing called the P1127, the forerunner of the Harrier. And there was lots and lots of belief that maybe it would work, maybe it wouldn't, but it wouldn't, would it have any operational viability? And so they formed a tripartite um, Kessel Squadron, Evaluation Squadron, and basically it was three aeroplanes were paid for by the Americans, three by Germany, three by England, and they had equal numbers of pilots and a British CO. And their job was to find out that, while our job was to find out that. And we used to, fortunately, I mentioned at Bedford, we had a helicopter, so these guys were operating these things out in the field. This is a small clearing to see if they could operate off runways. You know, a great operational uh, thing if you don't have to have big runways and all that infrastructure. Um, and this was a clearing actually right next to Bedford, but they, out in Norfolk, the squadron was doing all these trials flying, and one of the amusing incidents was we, were, we, we used to go out with a helicopter and we'd collect the ground crew and then we'd go and collect the food and then we'd take it to the aeroplane because the aeroplane could operate, 
from a little hole in the woods. The pilots and the ground crew couldn't operate without the normal things like food and tools and things. So we got very popular. We watched all this thing going on and we participated with them. Every now and again we borrowed one of their airplanes. This is actually a Kestrel that we borrowed. Uh, so I think that's the one that's in the Smithsonian now in America. Um, <clears throat> and one day they were operating and having a go at landing vertically in fields for the first time. And I was watching it, and this thing, something happened in the hover. I know what happened, but I'm not going to go into it. Anyway, it fell out of the sky, and boom, and it sort of all broke up. And the pilot, who was Colonel Barkhorn, who was one of the, I think, the top-scoring German ace during the last war, World War II, there have been so many when I say the last one. And as he walked away from the aeroplane, he says, 321 British aircraft destroyed. <laughs> and I promise you I was there, and it really did happen. He was a lovely bloke. <laughs> There's always a bit of humour on everything, isn't there? And then we also had this short SC-1, which was the original aircraft, um, the toll aircraft. There was a flying bedstead, um, but this was after that. And basically, you can't see it. There's four lift engines in there pointing downwards, and that's the intake for those. And there's one other type of engine pushes out thrust. Now, that engine was a very high percentage of it was plastic. But this little Johnny, Delta Wing, could fly vertically, but not for very long. Now, you notice that just there... And just there, there are bulges. The way you controlled it when it was standing still or going very slowly, there were obviously no air going over the controls. So bleed air was led off from the engine. It would push out of there to make the nose go up or out of there to make the nose go down. And there were the little jets in the wingtips to make it roll. And these things would also blow out sideways so you could turn it. So that you had no aerodynamic controls when you, when you had no airspeed. And just to show that it was a real airplane, there it is flying there. Now, this airplane... Um, didn't fly for very long. I, I mentioned that at Bedford there was the blind landing experimental unit. And one day the boss at Bedford had gone away and didn't tell me there was an air marshal visiting that afternoon. So in due course I had to go and meet him. I took him over around Aeroflight, showed him what we were doing, which I knew all about. Then I took him over to the blind landing experimental unit. And they were all lined up as they are in an official parade like this. And I said, this is, um, this is Flight Lieutenant Jim. He's, and he said, oh, hello, Jim. What do you fly? And he said, well, I fly the Comet and the Varsity and the Meteor and the Canberra. And he said, and I've just started flying the SC-1, one of these, you see. He said, oh, he said, tell me, do you fly it very much? And Jim said, yes, sir, no, sir. Now, air marshals don't like having their what's it pulled, do they, if there are any air marshals here, you see. So he said, right, explain yourself. You don't understand me? I ask you again, do you fly it very much? And Jim said, yes, I understand you, sir, but I'm afraid the answer is yes, sir, no, sir. He said, right, funny boy, what do you mean? He said, well, sometimes, if we're lucky and the engineers are all okay and the boffins have got their records, we might fly it as many as five times a day, which is a great deal for an experimental aeroplane. He said, but as it only flies for five minutes at a time, we don't fly it very much. He went, "Roof," you see, and pushed off. And at the end of the day, he was just about to close the door as the executive aeroplane fly off, and he'd opened again. He said, oh, by the way, I've been meaning to ask all afternoon. I said, does the SC-1 really fly for only five minutes at a time? I said, good God, no, sir. I said, sometimes we get six minutes out of it. <laughs> He slammed the door in my face and <laughs> never to be seen again. Anyway, um, and then we were, this was before the, the RAF had even bought the aircraft, the tripartite squadron were doing what I set up in Norfolk. We borrowed one of their Kestrels and we had, went to see whether it was suitable to fly at sea. So that's yours truly coming in to have a go at landing on the ship there. And to save time later on, we discovered that coming in over the end of the ship, and the ship normally is steaming pretty fast for the conventional airplanes, you've got an awful lot of turbulence off the back end. So we decided that the, the way to do it was to decelerate down the side, come to a hover, and then if you were told, 
eight is your spot. You just moved over and dropped in and on there. This was on a helicopter um, carrier, but later on you'll see more off Ark Royal. And here we are, Kestrel Sea Trials, nearly there. And you can just see the ship coming in there. And there we are on deck. And as I said back at the beginning, see, I still haven't changed. And that was on forward. Right. We then had a look at flying in holes in the woods. And we did this um, with the Kestrel that we bought. This was a forerunner, but seen again. This was actually quite close to Bedford, but um, we did it by day and we did it by night. And at night time, that's the closest I think I've ever come to buying it because what we hadn't realised, we set all the approach aids up, we'd done it by day and tried it out. What we hadn't realised at night, if you got a little bit low on the glide slope, below, you know, if you think back there, all of a sudden you can't, you start to suddenly pitch black. And John Farley, who made Mr. Visto, was on the continuous voice, he said, go up, go up. I said, I've already bent the throttle 45 degrees, there's no more to go. Unfortunately, it just suddenly popped up and we came out. Um, and that was okay. But when I went back the next day, we had a recce of the thing in the, in the helicopter. The trees where I had come to a stop, about 200 yards short of this hole in the woods, the trees were all flattened everywhere. And I reckon that had I had an engine failure at that time, I'd never have hit the ground because all the trees would come in and go, and I'd have been like one of those little cubes of metal that they crush cars to. So anyway, having decided we knew now how to do it, we decided we'd have a go in the SC1. So here we are. I don't have, these days, video hadn't been invented virtually, and this was just coming in there. You can imagine not an awful lot of fuel left, but the airfield was only three miles away, remember, so it's no harm. And we touched down, took off, and went back to base. And it was, handling-wise, it was just a dreamlike compared, this compared with the very early Kestrels, which had, not surprisingly, with brand new airplanes, lots of control deficiencies. But all the world was getting excited about VTOL. The, the, all the talk was, we're going to have civil VSTOL. And here's the idea. These are full of lift engines, like in the SC-1. And the two engines here are like they were having in the the 1127, then the Kestrel in the Harrier, where the, NOS, the engine power can go down or back. And they were so enthusiastic about it, they drew up designs. And I promise you this is a serious design consideration. See all these lift engines here, and all these lift engines here, and those providing. That was quite a complicated airplane, but 570 miles an hour, up to 96 seats, and it was going to go quite fast. So that was a serious design. Now, as a may have not made clear. In those days, they didn't have all these sophisticated simulators and research tools. You did a research aircraft first, then you did a pre-production thing, and then you find if everything looked good. So we'll follow that trail now. They actually built this. This was Dornier aeroplane, and there's your Pegasus-type engines, Harrier-type engines. This one only had eight lift engines, four there and four there, and that flew perfectly satisfactorily for quite a long time, did all the trials, and there was only one startlingly evident thing became clear. When you're at the end of a long journey, and you may be with weather divers and whatever, you're getting a little bit short of fuel, what you don't want to do is have to start up, if you remember the thing, 32 lift engines, when the fuel gauge is dum 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 right? And then there was one of the ore crises, and the cost of fuel doubled, and so the idea sort of left everybody's mind. But they were, they were, everybody was seriously talking about city centre to city centre the world over. And this was the first actual flying airliner, well, test airliner, if you like, to fly, and it flew very well. But, as I said earlier on, before you built your pre-production, you built a research aircraft. Now, you may not believe it, but that's a research aircraft. And that's me sitting in the cockpit there, fixed undercarriage, not surprisingly, 
Um, we could only fly in the hover because there are no wings to generate anything. There's nothing pushing out the back end. There's your four lift engines, the, the same as the one in the SC-1. And again, puffer pipes here and in the front of pitch and sideways for your, and you varied the thrust on the outboard engines. You didn't, you just moved the controls conventionally. That's all, would also only fly for five minutes at a time, but it was not very sophisticated, and it didn't have a fuel gauge in it. What happened is <coughs> when on the RT you'd done all your checks and you, were, you said, I'm ready to start, you press a, the start button, and at the same time a chap called Herr Dragonau, sorry lady, we used to call him Dragon Balls, he would start his stopwatch. And at the end of five minutes, he would wave a huge, great big red flag. And that was the time that it was definitely time that you got back down again. And um, one time, I, I was in the hover like that, and I thought, oh, I haven't looked at the max your control, your power. So I did that, and apparently, as I got to about there, he started waving the flag. And I stopped, I thought, that's far enough. And when I came back, I got the message, because Dragonau, with a very, very red face, now as red as the flag, was chasing after me, trying to trap my attention. So we landed, and all was well. Um, but now, just to show you, there's the cockpit. Now, you may recall, that, that's a test by the Dornier 31. That's Bill Bedford, that's Hugh Merriweather, and there's me still as a young lad. And in the background there is a German F-104, and that is her Dragon Balls. And so those of you from Bedford, there's Bill Chin, who was Mr. V-Store in those days, and various other guys. But, you remember the Cooper Harper rating I showed you? We had to give this research vehicle a Cooper Harper of nine because this was in midwinter and we said we are so goddamn frozen in that cockpit. If we don't have something to keep the wind out, we're not going to fly it anymore. So Cooper Harper nine got us this piece of canvas wrapped around the cockpit. <laughs> and um, there, was a, there was a lot of fun, that trial. It was all very successful, but as I say, the Civil Vestal became a no-no through other events outside where it could be done. The next thing was that we were researching on was short field landing because at that time we as a country paid an awful lot of money for the, for the VC-10 which was a super aeroplane but it was to try and get big aeroplanes into short fields because all around their old empire, remember, colonies and all that sort of thing, there were relatively small air runways there and so <coughs> the thing is how can we get an aeroplane to fly on a shorter landing and takeoff capability well the French came up with this idea which was quite brilliant, this thing I promise you I went out there for a briefing to, to Brittany um, east, I mean, and they briefed me and they said, now, you will be able to, f how to fly it, obviously. They said, now, when you weigh these things, you'll be able to land this in 100 metres. Now, that wasn't quite as big as a Herc, but it's a four-engine, big transport. I said, 100 metres, you've got to be joking. They said, well, you'll see. And the reason you could do it, do it, and I did, I got airborne, and every time I'd stopped in 100 metres, even on my first sortie, just remarkable. Why it was remarkable was this is the ingenuity of mankind, there are the four engines, great big propellers. They're all interconnected. So there's no question of, for those who fly, no question of asymmetric thrust. If you lose power on one, if one engine fails, you still have totally symmetrical thrust and it doesn't suddenly, you know, yaw or whatever. It's got huge flaps. And so when you're flying on the approach, you have to have a very high power setting to overcome the drag of the huge flaps. <clears throat> and it flies at 55 knots. All four engine throttles are linked onto a common gang bar, so you're basically almost like a helicopter. You're one hand on the stick, one hand on all four throttles, and you fly the approach very steep at eight degrees, because you've got all this drag to come down steeply. And when you get near the ground, you go, oh my God, you pull the stick back, and as soon as the main wheels compress the oleos, the engine snaps from full power forward almost to full power thrust reverser, and the thing stops in 100 metres. And it, it was easier, almost, well, it was easier than flying a helicopter almost. And you could fly it around, as I say, at 55 knots all day. 
And I realised how amazing it was, was when one day the chief test pilot at uh, Brittany, Reggae, said, I think we'd better stop, and that's because the top of the hangar had gone out into low cloud. But we were still flying down below 55 knots. You know, you almost don't need any visibility. Well, you need a bit of visibility, but not much height. They did actually take it to bits, by the way, um, going back to America to put it into a wind tunnel at Ames and then do some research flying on it. And although this sudden switch from full power forward to full power back, well, nearly, um, couldn't happen. There was a switch that you couldn't get the, that to happen unless the oleos were compressed. Somehow or other, 50 feet on a, an approach in America, they managed to get it into full reverse thrust. And it stopped in the sky and fell out, and there weren't enough bits left to put it back together again. But I don't think it would ever have succeeded, because of two things. By the time this was getting near, it could have gone into production. All the empire and all the everywhere around the world, they'd built huge, great runways, because it was prestigious. And the Americans came along with the 707, which didn't have to pay the penalty of the drag and all that stuff to get the VC-10 to land on short runways. And finally, the technical complexity of that was quite something. You know, you had to rely on the fact that the engines always stayed interconnected and so on and so forth. So it was sadly never resurrected, but it was quite some aeroplane. Now, the other way of doing it was this was another thing. This was a again, British research aircraft, normal engine in here, but only 30% of the thrust came out of there. The other 10% of it went to controls here and there and on the wingtips to provide the same control of vertical takeoff aeroplanes because you fly this thing down to 69 knots and there weren't too much, too many aerodynamics then, but 60%, 30, 60, yeah, 60% of the thrust came out along nozzles all the way down the trailing edge of the wing. So although the flaps in the aeroplane were only about that from front to back, with the full power, high power setting on and the flaps down and the thrust coming out the nozzles is equivalent to flaps that were 20 feet that big. So that's why you could fly this thing down to 69 knots. But God help if the engine stopped because you were just a bunch of scrap metal. Um, but it did. It proved that you could fly it very, very slowly. And to show you the interesting aerodynamics, you have, when you often wonder, can you trust an aerodynamicist? These aeroplanes are co-flying at exactly the same speed. That's the 115 on the way to the Paris Air Show with company with the, the hunting jet flap aircraft, which is going flat out to keep up with that, which is only, only going along at 120 knots. And the picture was taken by my wife there in the varsity, who we formated on because we didn't have any nav aids in it. We only had enough fuel for 60 miles at a time, and the batteries couldn't be relied upon to last all that long. So the varsity, which had that ground crew and all sorts of things, would fly along, and we would follow him to make sure we got from there, from England, Bedford, all the way across the channel down to the Paris Air Show. And that's just to show you that that was a Beverly, which had all our equipment in it. It also had all sorts of weapons to British airspace. We had to start with compressed air coming out the back, and another compressed air one started that. And there was a little carnival circus on the way to Paris. Um, how are we doing for time? Yeah, I better get rushing on. Right, we also, I mentioned the BLU had the blind, the, the comet for blind landing. We then shared it with them for doing blind takeoff. We had a takeoff director which guaranteed the most optimum climb out profile, whatever the thrust of the engine. Right, moving on, we were doing takeoff director trials, which guaranteed that whatever happened, you got the best performance takeoff. And the CA said, if you can prove that and certify it, then we will allow airplanes to take off with a much higher payload. More payload is more money. And we were using sharing, doing it in the Comet. We used to joke that nobody looks out because the BLU were landing it blind and we we're taking it off blind. Um, but the BLU wanted the Comet full time for their trials. And so we were given a Vulcan. It was in the scrap heap at Farnborough. Sea life expired. They said, as you're only doing takeoff and, you know, general smooth flying, not trying to take out Moscow. Um, 
we can give you another 500 hours. So four, super, four fighter pilots got a Vulcan to play with, which was pretty fun to do. That was a research aircraft of the line, and you saw it on the line. This just shows you what angle of attack we could get to. It was variable sweep. This is the maximum sweep, but the sweep wasn't variable in the airplane like it was in the Tornado and the F-111. Put it in the hangar, they undid the bolts and swept the wing and changed some more, and then you flew it again. Um, so that was a pure research aircraft. Then the next thing, which I'll rush through, variable stability aircraft, in-flight simulation, call it what you will. Some experts at the back will tell you what the current jargon is. Basically, this was a Mirage 3B, and the French, by the way, thanked us for all the research work we'd done at Bedford on the FD-2, because they went for the Delta aircraft, and we went for the Lightning, and they sold them all the way around the world, and I think, Martin, we sold them to about one other country, but there we go, maybe two. All right, this isn't a fuel tank or a bomb, as it would be in an operation. This is a highly sophisticated computer. And what you do, you go over there and you fly the aeroplane, you do a test pilot evaluation of the Mirage 3B. You then land, have lunch, have a glass of wine, it was France, and you take off. And now, when you flew the aeroplane, you cut out the ordinary controls and your signals went to the computer and it then made this aeroplane fly like a Mirage 3B should fly. So if this second sortie seemed like the first sortie, you say that's a good simulation, we can trust it, so you'd land, refuel, both yourself and the aeroplane, and you'd take off, and now this was simulating Concorde. And so using this aircraft, you'd go and do a cool Concorde profile long before it was built, still on the drawing board, and you could give the boffins a fairly good idea of what it might be like if the aeroplane they were designing had those characteristics which they programmed into this computer. Moving on quickly, that was one the American test pilots will do. That one simulated um, all sorts of aeroplanes including the 115 Slender Delta, and Slender Delta that isn't. Um, that was trying to simulate the Harrier, which it didn't do well at all, because helicopters are fundamentally different aerodynamics, so it just couldn't simulate it properly. This was in Ottawa, and these things here are computers. And that thing, would you believe, actually did a remarkably good simulation of the SC-1 vertical takeoff aircraft for a particular phase of flight, not the whole sortie, obviously. But it's amazing what you could do with computers to make the thing fly like the airplane that the boffins have in mind. And these are, again, different types of things. This is a cow span up at Buffalo. And all of these airplanes, what they don't do is when you're doing a working flight is they don't fly like what they are. They fly like what the boffins have put in the computers to make them simulate an airplane in their mind's eye. This was very interesting. That was their VSTOL simulator. And the only trouble with that, which we think misled them for quite a long time, is when you moved, the easiest way to do a dead steady hover was to make the noise stop, because if the noise stopped, you weren't moving. Which is, you maybe can't imagine that, but this, this thing made so much noise and cranking and moved, when it moved around, if you could stop the noise, you knew it didn't matter where you were, you were steady in the hover. Um, this is much more interesting. If you could see it, I'm lying on my back in there, and this is a simulator of the lunar landing module, that is the command module, but this is, if it's landed on the moon and taken off, if it doesn't join with that, the guys in there don't get back to Earth. And you could, when you started the simulation, the whole hangar, all the lights were turned out. This was at this back end of the hangar. That was floodlit, and you flew this thing, lying on your back, looking at the top, acting like you're just coming back from the moon. And if you didn't join up with that, you didn't come home. And that's, you know, a very big training aid, which I'm sure Neil Armstrong and all the guys that followed him were very glad that the clever boffins had invented that. That, I don't have a working thing, but that was where they did the landing. They would suspend a simulator of the lunar landing module in there, and that's where they would practice lunar landing on the moon, and that could simulate 
160, which I believe is something like that, they get on the moon. So these are all ways of background research for future aircraft. Then, very quickly, they've suddenly realised they've got four basic fighter pilots at Bedford, all right, test pilots, but we weren't familiar with really big airplanes, and we were giving all the inputs to what Concorde should be like. So, Clive, you better go off to Aer Lingus. It was British Airways, but British Airways wanted insurance, and the government said, we don't do insurance, we do indemnity. <coughs> British Airways said, we, do, we don't do indemnity, we do insurance. So Aer Lingus came up at the last minute, and we spent two weeks flying the 707, which was they'd only just flown across the Atlantic. That was the, you know, the forefront airline of the day. And they were very, very laid back, cheap test pilot, cheap pilot, and said, what do you want to do? And I said, what can we do? He said, you tell me what you want to do and why, and if I don't say stop, you can do it. We did single, you know, engine failures on takeoff, engine failures on landing. We stalled it. We, we did everything, you know, you're supposed to do when you're evaluating a new airplane. And um, on this one Saturday, they, Sunday, they wanted, the market Donegal wanted a, an air display for a, f- a field event he was having on in his state. And they came, Erlinger said, oh, well, you know, he wants us to put a 707 to liven the shark. And they said, well, you... We, you can have the left-hand seat for this, Clive. We won't have to charge you for it because it's in our interest. Julie came along to serve the coffee. We just had one other guy on board with the engineer. And we did an air show over this field 40 miles north of um, Dublin that I'd have been proud to have done in a hunter. I kid you not, it was quite spectacular. We were diving in for the airfield. He said, I want you to go in below those two trees either side of the gap of the field. And I started throttle back because the never exceed bells started ringing, not the, the ultimate, you'll break up with the lot. And I reached out, he, said, he hit my hand, he said, you fly to Trottles and I'll fly the aeroplane. I said, but that's an aeroplane, he said, it'll go a lot faster before it breaks up, Clive. And we flew over this field about, you know, below treetop height and then just beat it up. I mean, it was quite remarkable. And Julie was on board with me, she was, I was saying, in the copy, and she'd never seen more than 30 degrees of bank in an airline and um, she couldn't believe it, frankly, nor could I, but what a lot of fun that was. <laughs> Right, there's the, we also, we had the pleasure of going and evaluating other people's aeroplanes. And that was the Draken. There's some very funny stories about that, but we haven't got time. And then at Bedford, just before I left, we, we, this was a shuttle with thrust aeroplane, which we used to look after for them at Bedford. And what a lot of fun that was. We also had a Tiger Moth there, which I used to do with the annual um, bank holiday displays in. And we also flew the Avro Tutor. Um, they're all back at the Shuttleworth now. If anybody hasn't ever been to the Shuttleworth, it's something you've got to do if you're here, you're interested in airplanes. You've got to go to Shuttleworth and you've got to go to Duxford or, and um, Cosford. Fantastic air museums. Right, then I left Bedford, did story, uh, Staff College, or Stuff College as I called it. And um, I remember once I was in the hall here when we were coming to a lecture and you had to stand up and announce your, your, where you were from and what your rank was. So I stood up and I said, I have a question. And they said, yes. I said, Squad Leader Rustin, RF Stuff College. They said, don't you mean Staff College? I said, no, after a year, I mean Stuff College. <laughs> Didn't go down well with my tutors, but it was. Our, our senior student described Staff College as six weeks hard work compressed into a year. <laughs> you got it? Good, good. Right, then I got um, another tour flying, having been told by the Air Secretary that I could forget test flying and research flying and flying for a long time, and I said I was going to leave... My boss said, well, I know what your next tour is, and it's this. So um, I decided to cancel my resignation. Hunter Quartet, four different hunters, but they're all doing different things. That's an Institute of Aviation Medicine research aircraft for all sorts of aviation equipment. That was one where we were doing all sorts of flight, in, flight displays and advanced displays for airlines. And This was the world's first fly-by-wire aeroplane. 
there'd be many others, but this was actually the things you to be fed signals into a, a electronic box, which sent, sent signals to control um, units in the wings and the tail, and you flew it like that. And the, that one was the only normal hunt where we used to practice our all our standard exercises to retain pilot proficiency and instrument ratings and things. We also looked after all these helicopters, except that one. We flew all of these, Sea King, Wessex, um, Scout, Wasp, and Gazelle. And we weren't necessarily flying them as testing helicopters, as we were often testing things for helicopters, or where the helicopter could be radio trials or things like that, and where we, it was a convenient thing to fly. At the same time, we were also testing lots of other things, I didn't fly that one. This is I show to wake everybody up in the audience that's gone to sleep at this stage. But the, but the Army is still doing that with their display team. If you go to any air show and they're there, you'll see this happening. Uh, this is just a picture. We had at Bedford, I'd say, that was a Comet we actually had at Bedford. And that's a Comet 2, Comet 3B, and a Comet 4. And that was the sideways looking infrared radar there, which they had to modify because that's very destabilizing. And I christened that a Conrod because it was half a Comet and half an Imrod. And then the most amazing, one of the most amazing airplanes I've flown. By this time, the Air Force had definitely gone ahead for the Harrier, um, and it was going in full production now. But it, it could operate in all weather, but it had restrictions, like any airplane has. And we, BLU by this time, had certified airlines. Civil airlines could land in any zero, zero, you know, zero visibility, zero cloud base. Wouldn't it be a good idea if these stock airplanes could do it? So this is a Canadian aircraft built as a serious contender for tactical truck flying, but it's tilt-wing V-stole, not like the tilt helicopter, the wing, whole wing in the engine tilts. And the Canadians provided the aeroplane, the Brits provided the avionics, and the Americans provided the facilities at Patuxent River. And that was a two-year research program, two pilots from each nation. And for a long time, I was spending three weeks in England, three weeks in America, three weeks in England, flying this thing. Um, now, there it is in flight, just to prove it flies very quick, very quick demo. If you can imagine it, you're flying along like that. Conventionally, it comes time to decelerate. So you start cranking the wing up. You have to start throttling back now because that's a big increase in lift. At the same time that's going up, this is going down like that. Before you've started that, this thing is parked there. Can you all see? This starts rotating. It's gauged by all mechanical gearboxes. And then you throttle back to stop going up. Then about there, the wing stalls, and so you have to suddenly put power on to get lit. And finally you go, this has gone down there, so the airflow goes like that. But when you're now at virtually no speed, this goes back to there, so you haven't got a barn door going that way. And so now you're flying where, to control the aeroplane in pitch, you move the stick like that. You don't move anything there or there because there's no air going over. You change the thrust from this up or down, so that's how you do that. If you want to roll the aeroplane, which normally is done by the ailerons, well, they're no use because they're going straight down. So it changes the pitch on the propellers, so that's how you roll it. And if you want to yaw it, there's no point in doing that. What you do is the, the rudder pedals move the ailerons. It deflects the thrust that way and that way, and so you yaw it. And in between, there's a whole lot, you know, it's a bit of everything. And when we started that program, which was at Suction River, <clears throat> the American admiral who was in charge of this, this, by the way, is a joke against us, not the Americans, um, they had a party and he was up on the stage saying how proud he was that this tri-national program was being hosted, the US Navy Test Center, and blah, 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 blah. And he said, and so this program we're looking forward to, to see if we can develop a capability 
for the AV-8B, which was their version of the Harrier, they were Marines were operating, he said, because it can't fly, fly in bad weather and we'd like to give it a capability. So when he came down off the stage, we were all drinking and having snaps, I went up to the Admiral as politely as I could. I said, gee, Admiral, I wish I had known that the AV-8B, as you call it, or the Harrier, as we call it, couldn't fly in all weather. He said, why is that, sort boy? I said, well, I've been doing it for the last four years. Nobody told me it was impossible. <laughs> the joke is, he said, you mean you've got them in England as well? <laughs> it's no wonder our manufacturing capacity, which is a thing that made us a very wealthy nation, isn't quite what it used to be. Um, anyway, moving on, I was very lucky. When I got promoted now to be OC flying at Farnborough, the Americans and the Canadians paid a blinder. They said, well, we're sorry, the UK can't change its project pilot. We're too deep into the programme. So I had the good luck of spending three weeks trying to sort Farnborough out, then three weeks in America having a go at this. I'd also pop up occasionally to fly the same profiles in this, a jet aeroplane, although obviously we weren't hooded because there was no second pilot in it. And we, that went on. And then... After three happy years at Farnborough, I came back one more from America, got in the office on a Monday morning. The boss there, who was a really good mate, he used to just say, come in for a coffee, Clive, and I'd slouch on his couch and we'd discuss what had gone on and needed to go on and what shouldn't go on. But he suddenly, the door opened early one Monday morning, he said, Rust, in my office now. I thought, it doesn't sound very good, not very friendly, and there's this huge in-tray here. So I thought, what have I done or what have I not done? But, Rustin, you are in trouble. So I go into his office, knock on the door, come in. And he, whereas I normally slouch on the couch, he put a hardback chair in front of his desk. So he's sitting here, and I'm, you know, three feet away. And he looks at me, and I think, God, what have I done? And he said, you're posted. And I thought, well, I'm beginning to get in mind the things I had done and I hadn't done. I was just about to start making all these excuses, and he broke into a big grin. He said, you're going to take over the fast jet test squad and boss him down which was any test pilot's dream dream job. And I said to him, and I still say, and I said, if you just kept your trap shut for another 15 seconds, you would not have believed the story of, of misdeeds that I would have been <laughs> trying to explain away to you for the next half an hour. Anyway, before I left Farnborough, I was... There's no point in being a boss without having power if you don't use it and abuse it. The comet we had, which is the one you saw, the big comet, was on its way to Las Vegas for satellite communication trials. And I said, well, I'm... I'm taking that ride. Sorry, guys. So we went through Bermuda, and this is only there because of the pretty picture letting down into the Grand Canyon. And that's quite some perk if anybody's never done it on the way to Las Vegas. Never mind Las Vegas is stunning, both good and stunningly bad, naughty. But that was quite some view. So that's, you know, just a picture for the fun. So then I got to Boscombe Down, and it was a squad, and it became Fast Jet Test Squad, and now it doesn't even exist. But that's moi in the Buccaneer. That's the Jaguar. More about that in a moment. That's the Phantom, which by this time was doing sideways looking infrared in a, in a high-speed aeroplane. And we had to cross over the airfield, doing over 600 knots at 300 feet. And guess what was five miles, six miles short of the runway? It was where I lived. And so they were very glad at Timpton when I got posted. That's the Hawk, which was, had just come through from the firm for us to do the clearance for it. That's the Hunter, which we used to chase lots of these aeroplanes. And that's the Harrier, which was doing lots of its initial clearance flying including the first trials to fly a carrier officially, war likewise, off an aircraft carrier. More about that in a moment. So there's the Jagger. You'll see a picture rather like this again. The point I'd make here, when this was being tested now, this was in 1976 time, there had been 
about over 100 in service, and all sorts of modifications were going on. But if you look at this, every time you put something on the outside of an aeroplane, it flies differently. flies differently, it performs differently. Obviously, the bigger, the more drag. It also affects the stability control. If you have something that goes way ahead of the centre of gravity, if you yaw, it tends to make you want to keep yawing. And so this isn't so effective. The inertias are changed. All the checklists are changed. The procedures are changed. If you're dropping a weapon, A, you have to make sure the weapon clears the aeroplane because it has been known in early trials for a missile to come off and shoot down the aeroplane it had just come from when it did a sudden pitch up. And if you're firing anything into the air or onto the ground, be it a rocket or dropping a bomb, you've also got to make sure it hits something. There's not much point in carrying it and going into the face of the jaws of the enemy if it doesn't work. So every time you modify the aeroplane, inside or outside, that has to go through a flight clearance program to make sure that it's fit for purpose. It's a, it's a word we didn't have, a phrase we didn't have then, but it just sums it up. This thing has got to be fit. If it's an airliner flying from London to New York, it's to make sure it will get you there in comfort and economically. And if it's one of these, it means you can hit what you're aiming at and at all times you'll stay safe and alive. Harrier, those days, these, those who don't know, these are the nozzles. They're, they're there and the nozzle's up here somewhere. They're the hot nozzles and that's the cold nozzle. All the air coming out of the engine goes through these nozzles. And these nozzles here can be rotated from straight back to for normal flying. And they can come all the way down. That's back. They can come all the way down for vertical flying. And they can go even forward to decelerate and go back while you're hovering. And what we were looking at is combat. Normally what happens when you're doing air-to-air combat, if you're trying to shoot down a nasty, he, this is the nasty and this is you, and you're trying to get on his tail. Well, now if you take the other thing around, and that's you and that's him, that's not a very thing. We found that if you put the nozzles down at full power, the airplane suddenly jumps sideways, virtually stop, the enemy shot through, you put the nozzles up, goodbye, Mr. Nasty Guy. Um, but the airplane could go through some pretty wild gyrations while that was going on, and... Um, our job was to, you know, have a look at all that. And it was great fun. And it was successful and it was used a lot. Then we come <coughs> to this was the first clearance for a Harrier to operate in a warlike mode on a, an aircraft car. That's the old HMS Art Royal. There's probably a barrier reef somewhere now. Quite shameful. Um, but I, every time I give a talk, I ask anybody, if anybody can guess what I'm doing here. This was taken from the Air Sea Rescue helicopter, which sits about here in case something goes wrong. And as I said, we decelerate down the side of the ship now, not conventionally down there like an aeroplane would. And when we come to a stop, we just move in sideways to wherever we've been told to land and drop it down. Nobody, only one person in all the years I've been giving these talks guessed right, and that was a school teacher in America who taught kindergarten children, and he guessed straight away what I was doing. Anybody got an idea? Four, three, two, one. No. I'm actually cleaning the ship for the captain. When I brought the thing on for the first time and moved across, he noticed that the jets blew all the crap out of the scuppers, I think they called that. And he said, Clive, this is in, in, the, in the wardroom, the wardroom, not the mess, uh, in that evening. He said, look, Clive, he said, if you ever have any fuel left at the end of the sort, he said, do you think you could fly slowly down the side of the ship and clean it? Because he said, it's a really filthy job, and you did a marvellous job. So I was actually slowly flying down the side of the ship. For some reason or other, I'd got fuel left at the end of the sortie and blowing it out. So that's what I was doing, a reverse vacuum cleaner, as I call it. <laughs> but I've never had to give a prize away for it, so I've stopped offering them now. Right, here we are, for, for real, coming into land. Um, and there we are going to take off. This was interesting. This was, unlike a, an ordinary carrier, which this was, of course, we were only using it for trials, you can just see these things. That's where the catapult shuttle goes. And, one of, and if it was a conventional airplane, it would be sat there 
with a wire around the hook on the bottom of the aeroplane. He'd do all his checks. He'd go up to full power, make sure reheating was going was ready. And when the ship came up and everything was ready, the deck officer would go, launch. And within a fraction of a second, this thing would go from naught to full flying speed in just a short distance. Unfortunately, in a Harrier, you were at the other end of the ship, sitting at not more than 40% thrust, because otherwise the brakes would slip, and you waited for the deck officer up here to judge the motion of the ship. And on this particular case, as luck would have it, I was doing a maximum weight, minimum speed launch to see whether it was you know, fit for recommendation for normal use. And I got the go, the ship had done that, and he said, go. And I went, and it came up like that, and then it went down even further. <coughs> and it was only about one and three quarters, two degrees nose down. One and a quarter was our maximum safe limit. And I would have sworn all the way down that deck I was 30 degrees nose down, because all I could see was green, angry sea, Really, when, you, when that line crosses your cockpit, you slam the nozzles down and you hope to get airborne on some wing lift and some thrust lift. And I wasn't actually aware of the problem. You know, you come off the end, you've nothing in sight except the sea, and it, it wasn't that close. And I, apparently I left a, a great big bow wave for about 100, 150 metres on takeoff. But um, it was interesting. So when the guys invented the ski jump, that was just marvellous, because whatever happened when you left the end of the ship, you were going up, not risking going down. Right, that was a Hawk clearance, multi-role aircraft. Um, this is an interesting one. We were doing, it was a superb aeroplane to fly, but there were several things wrong with it. Um, one, if you put the air brakes out just here, you, if you're doing 420 knots and you were more than six foot tall, you've got a nasty bang when your head hit the canopy roof. But more important, when we were clearing the guns and the rockets, because it had a secondary role in the air defence, I did one of the first service tests on it at Boscombe Down, and I came back and said, it's got a Cooper Harper of... Um, well, for the Mission 9, I, I, they said, what do you mean, you've got 60% score? I said, I did 13 dive attacks, and I could only get the Pippa, and that's the site, on the target in one go. The rest of the time, the, you just couldn't control the airplane. And um, I said, it's unacceptable. They said, well, you know, I gave it something like a 7 or 8 or something like that. And they said, well, no, you can't afford the mod, you know, it flies all right every other way. It's true. It, went, it exceeded all its performance specs, went further, faster, higher, pulled more G. Um, and I said, then I had a brainwave. I said, well, are the red arrows going to take over this airplane from the NAT? Well, of course. I said, well, I guarantee to you as an ex-back arrows, there is no way that can do formation aerobatics because of the control sensitivity. So the mod was approved. You have to resort to sometimes to skullduggery. Although it was true. I think if that, they hadn't changed the control gearing. That's all they had to do was change the gearing so that the controls didn't move as fast. It would have been trouble. And the Buccaneer, that's just another pretty picture that we had. There's the Phantom, um, which is a game where you do all sorts of... Lots and lots of things in that, and the Buccaneer were equipment for fast jet aeroplanes, but not the aeroplane per se, because they'd already been cleared for normal operation. And then the Javelin, that was the last Delta wing fire. That was probably on the way to Duxford, where it sits in the museum now. And there's the Hunter. This was amusing. This was spraying water over the troops on Salisbury Plain to simulate bacteriological warfare. We had to promise them it really was pure water and it weren't nasty things. We were going to get up their nose and, and kill them. And then we got to fly their aeroplanes, and this was the Vegan in, Swiss, in Sweden. And one of my moans here, when I have more time, I'm going to make it now, that aeroplane was built by a nation with a total population less than the centre of London. We can't even build sewing machines now without going into multinational conglomerates, and it really brasses me off. Now, there are ladies in the audience, so the next slide is on for five seconds only. We had to test airplanes in all sorts of conditions, all weather, weather effects on the airplane, weather effects on the pilot. So one day we had to go and have a roll in the snow in Sweden because it was winter, 
And this is what Swedish pilots do when they've had a roll in the snow. They do that, and that's enough for you girls. <laughs> right, getting near the end, which will be a very quick flash through. I, unfortunately, lost the job to be joined the Concorde program because they said they were going to have to wear spacesuits for the initial trials because of what happened on the comet where windows blew out and depressurized. This was going to be flying up at 60,000 feet. And Brian Trumpshaw asked me if I'd like to join him. I said, can fish swim, can birds fly? But I failed the medical, and they said, you know, with glasses, you should be wearing glasses, and you can't wear a he tailor helmet, so lost the job. So Brian very kindly offered me a ride in the Concorde, and he gave me a left-hand seat ride. And to give you an idea of what this thing was like, we were flying around the Bay of Biscay doing intake. They, they have variable intakes there to keep the solid air and airflow sonic, subsonic through the airplane. We were doing Mach 1.35 with two engines at idle going round and round the Bay of Biscay. And on the way home, he said, would you like to see Mac 2? I said, you bet. So I slammed the throttles through, and you've heard what reheat is. He said, no, you don't need reheat in Concorde. Came back to normal dry power, and we cruise climbed and accelerated to Mac 2.1. And that's quite awesome. So the next day, I go back to my squadron, and I say to the GP, I want everything off this airplane, the absolute maximum fuel in it. I said to my navigator, I want a minimum fuel burn climb to the Ciliars. We could only go supersonic out, and we're going supersonic down the channel. I'm not having an airliner go faster than me. <laughs> and our minimum fuel recovery was reached when we'd only got to 1.8 Mach number, which shows you what an amazing airplane Concorde was. And if anybody wants to know my view, why Concorde eventually wasn't a success, I'll let you know. It was a success for what it was designed to do, but commercially it wasn't so hot. And then just before I left Boston down, we'd done lots of preview trials on the tornado at Wharton in Germany, whole stories in themselves, and this was its first working flight, and my last working flight at Boscombe Down on takeoff of the Tornado, and you've got models of them here in both the swept and unswept wing configuration. And then I joined Handing Squadron, I got a TriStar conversion with British Airways, um, I got a swan, a flight there on, on route to Detroit, and then back through Bermuda, and back to London, and it really brassed me off. The, the pilot, the crew, when they landed at Bermuda for a weekend stopover, and they emptied the galleries of food and booze, and they were handed more for their over two days overnight allowance than I was getting in a month as an RAF wing commander. So I got the wrong job, but I wouldn't have changed it for the world. And then I left, I became an airship pilot, as you heard, you all laughed. The project I was employed by Franti was to be a, the um, aviation consultant, really, and provide all the inputs for what the pilot-wise, this is the pilot down here, that's the size it was going to be, and that's the 747, to give you an idea how big it was. But instead of an aeroplane, it was going to have a huge Westinghouse radar in there to sit at 10,000 feet, provide radar coverage out to 200 miles in every direction over, a, over an armada of ships, which didn't have an indigenous aircraft carrier. It's a no-born early warning. And I spent nine happy years doing that. And that's the airship flying over Farnborough. And I think my daughter was a co-pilot there. You see, it had a lot of similarity to the Harry. The, the ducted engines could slow back. But what was amusing, this was during Gulf War I, and the whole nation was being pleaded with to not use any fuel. And ESSO went nuts when they realised they'd paid us a large, well, the company, a large sum of money to advertise ESSO. And they said, take the banner off, take the banner off. We said, we can't take it off because it has to go in a hangar and there isn't one. So every day we flew over Farmer for about two hours in the morning. Um, and there's a lot of tricks you can do in an airship once you get to know how. And... Um, Anyway, that was a lot of fun. And then on Handing Squad, we wrote all these pilot's notes and aircrew manuals and things like that for everything that flew in the Army, Navy, and Air Force. And Charles Church, who had a Spitfire, a Mustang, 
and uh, Misha Schmidt, and I forget some other cranky, um, ugly-looking um, Swiss airplane, he said that he sent an order in for some pilot's notes for the Spitfire. And I said, I'm sorry, we don't sell pilot's notes for Spitfires. We write notes for the Air Force. If you have any Spitfire pilot's notes, they'll be in the museum. But we've got a bunch of experts here, if you like, will come and write some notes for you. So he invited me down to his palatial office in Cambly and blah, blah, blah. So he said, would you like to be one of my pilots? And again, can fish swim, can birds fly. And so for several years, I was very lucky to fly the Spitfire, the Mustang, uh, I never got to fly the Mischmidt and watched other pilots flying it. I was glad I wasn't asked to prove myself as an inadequate pilot. And this was um, going through Boscombe down for refueling, having done an air show at Exeter. And then I was also asked to fly and lead this team here. I thought it was because I thought how proud they've asked me to lead it. And that's because you have to do all the flight planning, all the admin and organ, everything else. And that's, I think, why I was. But these were primary trainers circa 1940, all American. And this was on the way to an air show at Land's End. Um, and then another team I joined, that's me and the Venom. And we had these ex-Swiss Air Force Venom vampires. And then I went back to TPS and worked for them. You can see there's a few more modern airplanes there now. They've got a Tornado and a Jaguar and so on and so forth, a modern jet airliner. But the same principle, learning to find out how to find out if an airplane is fit for purpose, and if not, why not, so the boffins, the engineer, can turn it into one that is okay. And the owner of this lot let me do a display to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the um, test pilot school. And then this was to celebrate the 50th anniversary of this, which was that and the Meteor, the two first jets in the world, if you ignore the German experimental one. And that's me flying the Venom, which I've, you've seen before. That's the way on to Bruntingthorpe. Um, that's the Hunter, which a, a Swedish couple bought, and they asked me to test it for them and then teach them how to fly it and then I took it to Sweden but we also did air shows in that around the UK and then this was to celebrate 100 years of powered flight, this is the REACT which is coming up again this year huge international air show and um, that's the Benham and we took a sea vixen there and the vampire and I was asked to get 20 pilots who'd done the most over the last 100 years for British aviation because the Duke wanted to meet them on this auspicious occasion. And the two requirements were that one, they were still alive, and two, that they were fit enough to walk from the car park to where they were going to meet the Jew. And all these other illustrious guys are very famous test pilots. Some of you will recognize that's Jimmy Dell, who um, was the Wharton chief test pilot at the time. And I think you'll probably recognize his, his wife at the moment is the start of all sorts of celebrations this summer. Now, you've talked about the Cooper Harper rating, and please know you're nearly at the end. I was flying an airplane that looked very much like that one day. We had a large, slightly larger thing than that. It was a recce pod. And we had 1,000-pound bombs there. And I had just arrived at Boscombe Down, having been away converting on a, to a buccaneer, or, uh, learning to fly the Jaguar. But I'd only done the ground school and, and some simulation in Germany and two flights. So this was to refresh me on the Jaguar after the buccaneer, the Harry, and all the other things. And um, also to see how they tested this airplane type of airplane to the limits in what's called wind-up turns, where you slowly increase the turn until you either meet the structural limit, which is a no-no, you don't, or a handling criteria. So this was to refresh me on the Jaguar, see what my squadron pilots thought were limiting factors, and to refresh on the airplane. And the captain, who was in the front seat, and I was in the back seat, he demonstrated these things. Basically, you do a wind-up turn, and you pull more and more and more until you reach either wing rock or the nose might slice off, 
or whatever. And he said, okay, you have a go now. And he gave me 0.9. He'd done 0.6, Mach number 7, 8. That's 90% of the speed of sound. So to do that, you climbed up, and 20,000 feet was the test altitude. And as long as we did it between 22,000 feet and 18,000 feet, that was good enough for what we're trying to do. So you climbed up to about 25,000 feet, put full reheat on, and you went into the dive, got up to the speed, and as you got the speed at the right speed, and the 22,000 feet on the button, you started pulling to see whether you got wing rot, yaw off, or whatever else. And <clears throat> we had normal operating limits. That's an angle of attack which you are totally safe at, and then a never-exceed one where they don't know what's going to happen beyond there, so whatever you're doing, you don't go beyond that one. We didn't get near the normal operating, and all of a sudden the airplane went completely and utterly violently out of control. And fortunately, I had an altimeter in the back. I had no idea what the hell was going on. It was rotating. For those of you who fly, it was going from 6.5 plus G to minus 3.5 G every 1.6 seconds, all the way there and all the way back. It was rolling up to 720 degrees per second per second roll acceleration, and the yaw was plus or minus 2 G off the clock, and it was violent. We didn't know at the time, not until months later when the inquiry had finished the airplane, was the engines had gone out after the first pitch, and with no engines, no hydraulics, no controls anyway, and it was breaking up. But as I say, I, ha I had an autometer in the rear cockpit, which was one of the first, which as well as needles, which were going around at an enormous speed and you couldn't read them, it had a digital readout. And I suddenly realised it was showing 8,000 feet. And I said to the captain, I said, it's 8,000 feet. Normally, if you're out of control, 10,000 feet as low as you are. I said, I think it's time we left. Now, I don't know whether I actually remember saying that or it's because of all the feedback, because on the way out... The back of my bone dome hit something and squashed it flat, and I had amnesia. So I don't really know anything about that day at all, other than what I've been told. So without you, I talked about a Cooper Harper 10. Here's an example where I, without any reluctance at all, gave it a Cooper Harper 10. That was what the air, that airplane looked like four seconds after we had left it. And with a warped sense of humour. By the way, you can see it went through the water table near Wimborne St. Giles, and that water, and the fact it penetrated the water table so it didn't burn, saved our careers because the crash recorders didn't work. Everything was too violent for them. But they dug the flight test instrumentation out the bottom of the hole and it explained what had happened. And we didn't discover inertia coupling. We'll get a quick demonstration of that in a moment. And my warped sense of humour, that's the right wing tip, that's the left wing tip, and that's the top of the fin. And the rest of the aeroplane is way down there. So, thank you for your attention. That shows the complete lack of respect pilots have for their aeroplanes. <laughs> thank you, Clive. What a fascinating career you've had. And thank you very much indeed for coming and sharing It's a pleasure. With us and they paid me for it as well. The, the Not much, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, now, Clive will take a few questions. Yes. Um, what's your top three aircraft out of all the aircraft that you've flown the most fun to fly? Top three. Well, first of all, any aeroplane, really any aeroplane, I've flown a range of microlights as well, you know, sublime to the ridiculous. I just love flying aeroplanes. But I suppose, emotionally, the Spitfire, but it's certainly not the nicest aeroplane by a long, long way, but you can't not get a huge kick out of flying. The Lightning, as I said, because it was the first step into a whole new world of flying, absolutely, totally awesome. And probably the Vulcan, 
I can't say Concord. I've flown Concord and did all the search for it, but I haven't flown it enough to really... I'd be boasting if I said that was one of my favourite airplanes because I'm flown in enough to know what it's like doing the real job. Just to fly it, it was fantastic, but it's, that's not what it was built for. And I suppose the Vulcan, because as I said, you know, it's sort of a single-seat fighter pilot together. And the way we got the um, conversion to the Vulcan um, was we didn't. We, we, well, we thought we had a... I was lucky enough to get a simulator ride at um, Waddington, I think they had them there. That was when they were the, the detergent deterrent, sorry, we always used to call their name, the nuclear deterrent, deterrent. And the funniest thing I remember about that, I did get a ride in the jump seat, so I had some experience of flying the Vulcan but not actually flying it. And um, when I went to the mess after, we, we were fed pre, pre-flight meal, we were fed food you couldn't believe on the airplane, and when we finished the flight, we got a post-flight meal. And I, I'd never seen anything like this, and I'll tell you why in a minute. And I went, looked, happened to look through the messing suggestions book, and I'm not kidding you, one of the things, could we have a change in menu? That's the fourth time this month we've had smoked salmon on the menu. <laughs> I hope you poor chaps. At Bedford, we, they'd started to introduce what was called energy rations, and it was meant to be that you were supposed to be able to have a cup of coffee when you finished a flight. And they said, well, um, or at least some of the time. And when I, I was a junior guy on the air flight, and I said, went through the chance, said, can we have coffee? And they said, well, you, all you get is one coffee, for every two hours of flying on the squadron. I said, we're flying an airplane. And I said the CC-1 was fifty minute, five minutes flying. On the original P-1127, I didn't have time to do it now, so I'll do it now, we would sometimes, had so little thrust, and they hadn't worked out how to get rid of the ground effect, which was sucking down, we would start a takeoff with 170 pounds of fuel on either side, two, four, and we were burning 250 pounds a minute. And you don't have to be much of a mathematician to that. And we get airborne, we do one control input for the boffins, one of those or one of those or one of those, and then you spend the rest of the fuel trying to land this almost uncontrollable beast that was bouncing around in ground effect. So I said, listen, I'll have done three tours here before I get a cup of coffee on that rate. So they finally agreed we could have a cup of coffee for each after each three flights or something like that. Yes? Two questions. Um, one is how many hours have you got totally? About 5,750, but I have to confess I haven't bothered doing my logbook for quite a while. And that doesn't count airship flying, which is several hundred hours. The second question is, have you ever flown anything that doesn't exist? In the sense of, it was an aircraft that maybe we had, but nobody knew that we had it and you were flying it, like, say, a MiG or something like that, or an aircraft which never came into development? Well, that's right. Well, as I said, remember, I said we had nine experimental aircraft at Bedford. And that was just, you know, in, in one tour. And flew several over in America. But I haven't, I haven't got time now to list all the ones. But um, lots and lots of weird and wonderful things. Like the Dornier 31 aircraft, I said, you know, never entered service. Um, but we were flying research aircraft of all types all the time. Some did and some didn't go on to be something that became a real thing. I always remember once when we had the Russians came to visit Bedford and um, long ago, before the Kestrel even, and one of, we were leaving the hang, we noticed one of the Russians had got his head down the intakes of the SC-1 and one of the, the Russian party with us, all the rest of them, he apparently shouted, he said, come on, sir, I hurry up. And he turned around and said, I am hurrying now, go away and leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> he was trying to get our V-Store secrets out of the airplane. So I'm not sure if that answers the question that you asked. No, I just wondered whether 
I'm not a, well we certainly never put anything well, I have no idea what happened I mean certainly after the um, Falklands War we got some Tincanos and things or whatever the things they were flying they, they came to England and were assessed but we never put any foreign aircraft into service other than you know the American airplanes like the Phantom but apart from that I, I'm not aware that anything has been in, brought into service in this country Could I just perhaps add a point there for a brief period in my career uh, Lightning's Hawks and Yorkers 52 that's a right zone but we had a B-25 remember for about a week after a, defe a defector mm -hmm. flew in Hokkaido I was in the intelligence world at the time and somebody suggested I should go there and fly but luckily that mm -hmm. never happened but well, the only ones I got involved in was the Draken and the Vegan. I was twice down to fly the next flight on the Balzac, which the French original vertical takeoff airplane. I think it was a research. I think it had eight lift engines in it, and it crashed on the flight before I went out to fly it. And then I was down to fly the Mirage 3V. The next flight on it was me, and that one crashed before I flew it. So, so somebody was looking after me. Anybody flew the MiG-25, which was a pity, but it was in our hands. Really? Well, I can't answer that, but I mean, I, I don't doubt that we got our hands on all sorts of things from the other side. I mean, Winkle Brown, if you've ever heard him talk, it's very interesting. I mean, he's flown all sorts of things all over the place, in, in, in both when he was at the farm, been, I think he flew all the German aircraft, evaluated them after the war. But as I'm not aware of anything that was foreign that became, went into service with us other than standard American airplanes. I was just wondering if you were to start your aviation career again in today's sort of world and situation, what route would you be looking to, to take through? Interesting question. If it wasn't for the fact that my wife was an ex-stewardess and knows what goes on in the airlines, I'd probably say I'd go and become an airline pilot because one of my best friends, his retirement pay is about four times higher than the pay I got as a wing commander, never mind now. Um, and that's a very easy life. But in terms of my flying career, I, I don't see any way I could have bettered that. But now, I don't know, you know, I just feel for some of the guys working at that part of the test pilot school, and they might, if they're lucky, fly one or two types. I'd still like to do it, but, you know, I mean, I, I just think that I was lucky, as I say to people, my mum and dad had me at the right time. <laughs> because, you know, if I'd been born earlier, it would have been a different era, and if you'd been born later, they would slowly all... Damn computers, they do too much for us without you having to build things to, to try it. How, how long till um, we don't really need anyone up front? Well, you've got to remember, this is my view, strictly my view, because I can tell you at Boscombe Down, and more and more effort is going into unmanned aircraft, the American Air Force have got a problem with the fact that in the old days, the, the, the fighter jocks in the American Air Force were the guys who were trained and bred to go all the way to the top, the guys with the most kills on their belt now are sitting in a control room in California controlling the, the things flying over Afghanistan. So it's a very, very different world we're in now. And um, it's hard to answer that question, really. I don't know what the answer is. How did the Vigant uh, and Draken compare with the Lightning and Falcon? Well, the Draken, uh, that, that was a nice aeroplane, but uh, I mean, I didn't get an awful lot of evaluation of it. The, the Draken one was a nice aeroplane to fly, but I wouldn't have rated it much better than a, than a Hunter. Certainly not as good as a Lightning. The, the Vigan was, yes, a step ahead of the Lightning. But again, in, in a quick evaluation, you don't have a chance to evaluate all the weapons systems and things like that. And that often is, I mean, a fighter is there, sadly, to do a job, and that's to kill somebody 
or an airplane. And often it's what's in there to enable you to do that that makes a difference between just another airplane that's fun to fly and one that can earn its keep, hopefully never having to earn its keep, but could if it needed to do, to do so. The second question from that, uh, Ferry Delta Two, difficult to fly, why? Could it have evolved into an effective fighter? Oh, well, the, the French did with the Mirage, and I say there was an official let letter, I don't know if it's in the archives, Barry, up at Bedford or, or in, in Fast, but um, <clears throat> I know, I saw it, there was this official thanks from the French for the research work we'd done on Delta supersonic delta configurations and the work that had been done because the FD2 was very highly instrumented it had <coughs> sorry about this cough pressure sensors all over the wings <coughs> and you know just you name it we tried it in it and so it was a very comprehensive textbook of supersonic delta wing configurations what was it shortcomings oh sorry why was it so loud right this was an experimental airplane and because nobody knew for sure how it was going to fly the control gearing if I say one-to-one, -one, what I mean is if you put full aileron on, you've got full aileron. If you put full elevator on, you've got full elevator. We had two gear change levers in the airplane, and we discovered <clears throat> that if you wanted to have enough control power to cope with gusts on landing or on takeoff at slow speed, you have to have two-to-one. One-to-one, you couldn't fly. It's just too sensitive, <laughs> like that. So two-to-one. By the time you got up to go supersonic, you put it into nine-to-one on one of the control and six to one on the other. Otherwise, it was too sensitive. The other thing is, um, Barry could probably give more details, there were problems with, the, you know, the, the hydraulic system wasn't as pure and thoroughbred as maybe it should be. And certainly on the ground, sometimes we, John Farley did this when he couldn't understand, you'd stand in the cockpit with the power rigs and you'd move the control column, and you'd actually have to wait before you saw the elevator. But if you're trying to, if you can imagine driving a car, you do that, and you say, hang on, what's happening? And you do that, and suddenly it does do that. You could find you're driving a very wonky line along the sky. So, as I say, we take off in two to one for takeoff, so we had enough control power to cope with gusts and things near the air. As you accelerated, you slowly changed to six to one and nine to one for the supersonic. When you went supersonic, and we only had, for a full supersonic run, the flight was 13 minutes. And I say 13 because it wasn't 12 and it wasn't 14. And nothing else flew when the FD2 was flying because it could only, it had enough fuel for a straight in recovery. And maybe if, if Horry had to go around to do a one overshoot and come in. And as you went subsonic on a 4G turn and we were pressure testing to try and find out what the aerodynamics were. So pressure sensors all over the airplane. And as it went subsonic, which you, if you, you learn, if you watch the Mach meter kick, you let go of the stick because if you didn't, you suddenly were going dum, 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 because you had to be in one-to-one -to, -one to control it supersonic. And I said you couldn't even control it for takeoff and landing, barely at two-to-one, so suddenly the airplane would yug like that. And the two-to-one was a heavier airplane, more advanced hydraulics and things. That's my understanding of it anyway. But John's written a paper somewhere, it's in the history book somewhere, of why the FD2 was so bad. But um, as I say, it was just so much fun to fly. two-to-one was... Oh yeah, well they, they've, you know, they'd learnt the lesson, the hydraulics are better. Although again, this is an interesting thing. On, on my evaluation of the, um, not so much the evaluation, when we were discussing the final design and so on for the 221, I said, what's this system for lowering the undercarriage in an emergency? Because remember, the whole British aviation industry was on Concorde. And the FD2 didn't have a blowdown undercarriage. You know, if the hydraulics failed in the FD2, you landed wheels up or you banged out. 
But it wasn't that swept in the FD2, so there was a reasonable chance you might have been able to... In fact, one did recover it with the wheels stuck up. I think Peter Twist did once. Um, but with the 221, there was no way. And we had this big meeting, and um, they said, well, what do we want a blowdown system for? It's just and I, just like the... I said, no, it's not. It's got Gannett nose wheel and lightning main wheels, which is not what the FD2... There's nine more sequence valves aside to make sure all this gobbledygook works and comes up and goes down. And... If the hydraulics fail, there's no way we're going to land the airplane. So the whole of the Concorde program is going to be stymied. So they went away, they said they put out a study, and somebody came back and said um, he'd done a statistical study examining every accident there'd ever been, every, every failure of an undercarriage to, to lower. And he said, well, I worked it out that knowing the, the two-to-one situation, there's, a, there's only a five, one in 500 chance that the undercarriage will fail. And so one of the guys, he said, oh, well, that's right, we're only going to fly it 400 times. <laughs> and if he hadn't said that, we might not have got it, but it was just such a ridiculous statement, they put it in. That undercarriage lowering system was used on the 21st flight of the aeroplane when a guy, one of my pilots, who subsequently got thrown out of the world of test flying, but I, we didn't know, he was a very, very highly qualified, skilled pilot, and far more intelligent than me, but there was something wrong with his gearing. And we had a situation where in the 221, when your 2,000 pounds were gone, you couldn't trust the gauges, but you knew what was gone. 2,000 pounds gone, it didn't matter what you're doing, you cut what you were doing and came home. And I'm sitting in my office listening to the continuous voice radio, which we use for safety and critical test flying, talking to John Farley. And he said, oh, this was supersonic flyby on a javelin. It was pressure error. And the javelin, you could only fly in formation up to 0.9, and then beyond 0.9, you did a flyby. And he took photographs and all sorts of things to get all the corrections done. And he said, I've got the, I've got the um, javelin in sight now. I'm accelerating through 1.5, um, stabilizing now. I've got 2,100 pounds gone. And I'm talking to John and listening to this. And then the next thing he says, I've only got half a mile to go and I've got 1,900 pounds gone. And I jumped straight over the desk and grabbed the microphone and said, cut, 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 cut. You know, I was worried. John said, what's the matter, Clive? He'll be all right. I said, it's not your aeroplane that's just about to disappear off the face and he suddenly we lost radio contact with him he'd asked for a diversion to marham and you trusted these guys we only had four parts he hadn't found out that marham was closed so now he's short of fuel and he's diverted an airfield which he was going towards they said we'll take you to witten which was open and coming back towards witten it was fairly pretty good day but there was some cloud around he saw an airfield he said is witten 11 o'clock that's, you know, there. And air traffic said, yes. He said, okay, I've got it, I'm going in. And he went down, dove down, went downwind, selected undercarriage down, the hydraulics failed. So he blowed, uses the, what I used to call Clive's emergency system. He did a good job, he came in, he landed, and he kept one wheel up until it locked down, then dropped it, the nose dropped. And he thought, why on earth are they letting people play football and, and rugger and hockey right up to the edge of the runway? And he'd landed at, at, at a different airfield. And that's why sometimes that Cooper Harp rating grabs somebody's attention when you say, as far as I'm concerned, even before it flies, I'm giving it a 10 if you don't put an emergency undercarriage. It's not really a test pilot's job to do that, but we're in the hot seat when it goes wrong. So that's a sort of little anecdotal story for your amusement. Very quickly. Um, do you know how many aircraft you've actually flown? Well, I said, the last time I did, it's about 165 types. Um, but I, I'm not sure. It's... it's, it's very lucky. Well, I think I've flown all of those. Yes, the only one I haven't flown is that one. <coughs> <laughs> it's not 
a joke. There was a time when there was a very strong talk of the Brits providing a pilot to become an astronaut, and the requirement was he had to have an engineering degree. And at that time, I was the only tele a test pilot in the UK with anywhere near the right experience, and I had an engineering degree. So I thought, this is on. And then it all fell through. So that, that was what I, I got in my mind close to flying, but, but it never happened. But I had two of my pilots. We always had an American exchange officer at Boscombe. In my time there, we had two, and they both flew five times in the space shuttle, and one of them spent four and a half months on the Russian space station, and we were invited, as Julian and I, as VIP guests, to two shuttle launches, one by day and one by night. Awesome program. If anybody hasn't actually seen, been there, one one goes off. It's just absolutely unbelievable. Well, Clive, thank you so much. I mean, I think we could go on all, all evening. It's absolutely That's what fascinating. people always tell me I do. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. Uh, you know, Clive's very kindly bought all these models and books and things. You know, do, do, do have a look at them uh, afterwards. I'm sure people would like to do that. Finally, Clive, the, the Society got a small present for you. Oh, um, it's a Society tie. I suspect you've already got a Society tie. But I anyway. probably haven't, actually. <laughs> well, I don't if, if you have to pay for it, I probably haven't got one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't got one of those. Anyway, it's been an absolutely fascinating evening. And thank you so much, Clive. My pleasure. Thank you.